Hi, I'm Chris McKendry, and welcome to Equal Play, 50 Years of Equal Pay in Tennis, presented by J.P. Morgan. For any working woman who's also a mother, the public conversation has often been framed around how difficult it is to balance raising children and a career. And while it's always a juggling act, we working mothers know that ours is not such a simple story. In the world of elite sports, women athletes have faced the same assumptions when it comes to being a mother, and often even more scrutiny or judgment. In this episode, we'll first hear from Dara Torres, a world-class swimmer. For Dara, becoming a mother was hardly an impediment to her Olympic career. She'd already taken a step back from swimming and had staged several successful comebacks before she became pregnant. Just two years after giving birth to her daughter, Dara competed at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. And in the training leaning up to those games, she actually found she was more efficient in the pool and sometimes faster than she'd been in her youth. At 41 years old, Dara was the oldest swimmer to earn a place on the U.S. Olympic team, and she took home two silver medals, despite unfounded accusations of doping from critics who couldn't believe she could accomplish such a thing at her age. We'll also hear from Taylor Townsend. Getting pregnant unexpectedly in 2021 forced Taylor to look beyond her identity as a pro tennis player. Having her son also made Taylor consider who she was outside of the game she'd been playing her whole life. In 2012, after all, she was ranked the number one junior player in the world. Getting pregnant wasn't part of Taylor's initial plan, but she says it was a blessing in disguise. It gave her a chance to step back and rest before re-entering the pro tour with a fresh love of the game. She also leaned on icons like Serena Williams and Kim Kleisters, fellow tennis players and moms themselves to help navigate her new chapter. As we celebrate 50 years of equal pay at the U.S. Open, it's time to hear from these two athletes and mothers. Let's get into it. Dara Torres, 12-time Olympic medalist at age 41, the oldest swimmer to earn a place on a U.S. Olympic team, and you did it as a mom. This is such an exciting conversation. Thank you for the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's very nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you, too. I followed your career for your whole career, so it's it's remarkable. And swimming is such a grueling sport, and I imagine there's many hours in the pool. As much as you're surrounded by teammates, it's a lonely sport in a way. So... I can't imagine staying with something for as long as you did without having an incredible passion and just a love for it. What is it about swimming that nothing else could compare? You know, I, I, I really just think I felt one with the water. I felt this unity. And if, every time I dove into the water, whether I had a bad workout or not, it was just there was something that felt so good about being in the pool. And you know, no matter what water is, and even if I went to the ocean, like there was just something I really felt connected with. I think I was very lucky because every time I said I was going to retire, I really felt like I was going to retire. But I always ended up coming back because I'd missed the sport so much. And I love the sport so much. So I think that really allowed my body to recover and be able to be in the sport for as many years as I was. Your older brothers took you to the pool and your lessons began. But your teen years, you were an Olympian as a teenager, a high schooler, and it was in your hometown. Tell me about your first Olympic experience. 
Well, there was a part of me that was really upset that it was in L.A. because I didn't get to travel anywhere exotic um, <laughs> or fantastic, you know, like Paris coming up. But I also realized very quickly that it was actually more beneficial to me because a lot of my family members and friends and just a lot of people came to watch me swim. And it was just nice to be able to perform where you actually grew up. So it was it was really a blessing in disguise being able to compete in my first Olympics in Los Angeles. And then from Barcelona to Sydney, I want to talk about those first seven years you walked away. You were still around the sport. You were still in broadcasting, but you weren't competing. And you decide to come back at age 33, which at that time was advanced. What was it like coming back into competition and the training it takes to compete? You know, I, I was very hesitant at first, like when the thought first got in my head, like, oh, maybe I should make a comeback. And I hadn't touched the water in seven years. And in 92 in Barcelona, like they called me the grandmother at 25 because I was the oldest female on the team. And so coming back at 33, you know, I think what motivated me was really just not a lot of people have done that before. And to go to four Olympic Games would be just so cool. And, you know, when I reached out to the coach who was the head Olympic women's coach in 96, his name is Richard Quick. He was also the head women's coach in uh, 2000. And I, you know, asked what he thought of me training out there. And I kept waiting for him to say, oh, no, you're too old. Like, you can't do this. He's like, how soon can you get out here? And I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing this. Like, I <laughs> was trying to be talked out of it, but everyone kept talking me into it. So I thought, you know what, let's just give it a try. It's only a year of training, you know, but it was very interesting for me to really think about like, well, can my body do this? And I'm 33 years old and everyone's so young on the team, but you know what? I just said, I'm going to do it. And that was that. Were you actually stronger at 33? I mean, first individual medals coming at your first comeback. How was your physicality different than when you were a teen or even in your twenties? My coach's philosophy in 2000 was the stronger you are, you are in the weight room, the stronger you'll be in the pool. So he hired the strength coach that works with myself and Jenny Thompson and a couple of other members of the team. And it was all about just heavy lifting. I mean, I was benching over 200 pounds. And, oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, it was crazy. It was really crazy. But on the flip side of that, I realized as I got older that you know, you feel like a brick in the water. And that's where I first started to do the stretching training that I was doing that really, I think, sort of set me aside. Because I think if I didn't have that stretching that I was doing to sort of help me recover in 2000, I think it would have been a, a different ending to that chapter for me. Yeah. Instead, it ended with a medal, a gold medal. And you started crying after the last event in Sydney. Why? I swam five events there. In the last event, I won my individual medals, which I had been hoping to. It wasn't gold, but I still finally got my individual medals because my previous uh, three Olympic Games were all relay wins, or medals, I should say. And that last medal being put around my neck, which was a relay and was a gold, you know, I kept thinking to myself, what am I going to do now? Like, I just gave up my job. There's always younger, prettier women that are going to get jobs in broadcasting and in modeling. And like, what am I going to do now? And that's really what it, I think it was just a very overwhelming feeling of, I need to find a job after this. <laughs> and so I remember walking away and, and there was this film crew there and they kind of ran up to me and said, hey, Ms. Torres, we've been waiting for you. Can we ask you some questions? I'm like, sure, no problem. And asked me a whole bunch of questions. And one of the last questions they asked me was, you took seven years off. You came back at 33. Are you going to take another seven years 
off and come back at 41 and go for an Olympics? And I looked at this person, I'm like, that's really literally the stupidest question I've ever heard and just continued walking. So, <laughs> you know, needless to say, I try to find that person to apologize for telling him that was a stupid question. But yeah, I just thought my swimming life was over after that. <laughs> you should find the person and ask, what should I be doing in the next 10 years? I mean, that the person's a psychic. Are you kidding? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's so funny. I mean, you did you did come back and, and that's where I mean this episode's about motherhood and and moms returning to competition. Where did you well maybe I back it up because even if you weren't training for the Olympics, were you always swimming through your entire pregnancy? Did you ever get out of the pool? So I was out for from two after 2000, I didn't touch the water again for five years. And when I got pregnant with Tessa, I immediately got um, sick to my stomach. I was having the old, you know, just what everyone says is going to go away in three months, this, you know, lasted the whole entire pregnancy. Like I, I just, I was just sick to my stomach the whole time. I can pregnancy. appreciate I had one pregnancy. I said, I just feel like I've been hung over for nine months. Like this yeah, is- and it's, awful. <laughs> yeah. And it's not in the morning. It's like all, it's not morning. Yes. Sickness. It's like all day sickness. Yes. And yes. so I told myself that if I ever did get pregnant, which I was 38 at the time when I got pregnant and 39, when I had her, I said, you know, I'm going to work out no matter what. And I kept going to the gym. I kept getting sick and I, I can't keep this up for my entire pregnancy. And so just sort of a light bulb went off and I thought, wow, you know, if I go to the pool and I swim, that's a great workout. If I get sick, I just throw up in the gutter. I keep going. No one knows. And that's kind of how it started. And and I was literally just with no intention of swimming after I had my daughter, but just doing it for exercise. Wow. Take me to the moment then. When did that transition where you said, I'm going for it? And was it your idea? Did you have other people influencing you? Well, I I had about a week before I was supposed to have my planned delivery. Uh, the coach came up to me and said, you know, I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind maybe uh, in a month, swimming at this Masters Nationals we're having, we'll bring a lot of people in. We'll, you know, make some money. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think my my doctor's going to let me work out or even swim three weeks after I deliver. And he was like, well, just ask anyway. And I never asked. I just was like, that's just kind of silly to ask that. And so the day I had my daughter, you know, I, the endorphins were going and I was drugged a little bit. And I, I just turned to my doctor. I said, hey, you know, I have a meet in three weeks. Do you mind if I swim? And he said, dear, absolutely not. He goes, you can't do anything aerobic. He goes, you can go to the gym tomorrow. And so I waited a week and a half, which was a long time for me to not work out. And uh, as I was working out in the corner of my eye, I see my doctor and I'm like, oh my gosh, we're yik-yakking away. And now the endorphins from working out are going. And I just finally turned to him. I said, hey, Dr. Zaffron, you don't mind if I swim in a meet in a week and a half to you? And he's like, nah, go ahead. And I'm like, what? And he's like, go ahead, us doctors. We say wait six weeks. We don't, we don't really know. So just go ahead, be careful and have fun. And I'm like, okay. And so a week and a half, I had to get ready for this meet. And I swam in that meet and I thought I was done there. And then my daughter's dad had said, hey, there's another meet in a couple months. We went out to this meet and it was the Masters World Championships and like thousands of Masters swimmers there. And I got into some one race, which was the 50 freestyle. And I ended up qualifying for Olympic trials, which I didn't mean to, but I just did. And then once that happened, like everyone started coming up to me and was like, oh, it'd be great to see, you know, a middle-aged person in the Olympics. I'm like, great. Like, who's going to swim? Let's cheer them on. And they're like, no, you. And I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and so I think just like the peer pressure of these swimmers wanting like a, a middle-aged person in the Olympic Games just really sort of resonated with me. Like a light went off in my head and... I just said, all right, I'm going to do it. And I literally got back to Florida. I went right to my orthopedic surgeon. I said, hey, can you x-ray my body?
body? He's like, why? And I said, because <laughs> I, I need to make a comeback. I just want to make sure my shoulders and my knees and everything are okay. And he's like, all right, hop on in there. We'll take some x-rays. He's like, yeah, everything looks good. Go ahead. And I'm like, okay. And so then I had no more excuses. Like I, I said to everyone I was going to do it. And I was like, all right, let's just try this. And it, it was hard. It was hard trying to figure out how to balance being a parent and going and doing what you love. Or for me, it was almost ended up being a job because that's where I, you know, some of my income came from. But I really looked to working parents out there as my inspiration to see how they balance like going to work every day, but also being the best parent they can be. Yeah. It's hard, huh? It's exhausting. <laughs> it is. It is. You're very modest, actually, to say it was the same as, you know, others working parents and how did I juggle that? But you were very, very high profile and you were doing something other women haven't done yet. I mean, at 33, you were the oldest woman to win an Olympic medal in swimming. And here you are at 41. And people who aren't believing what you're able to do had to be talking it's just the nature of of sport and competition. What were some of the hardest things you had to hear and and endure? Well, I mean, there are basically two things. Number one, I'm too old. How can I be doing this? And number two, you must be taking some type of drugs to be able to do this. And so when when that started happening, that, that sort of rumble started going on, you know, I immediately went to Travis Tigert, who's the head of uh, USADA, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, and said, look, this is what's happening. Like, I'm doing this clean. Test me anyway. Take my hair, blood, urine, like whatever you want to do, just test me so I can prove that I'm doing this right. And He's like, well, let me sit on this and think about it. And I mean, honestly, you know, they'd come and drug test you whenever you had to fill out like all these forms of even when you're traveling, like they can show up at the airport and drug test you there. So they have to know basically where you are 24-7. If you're not there, that's like a strike against you. And so after about... A I think it was about like um, four or five months, he came up with this testing program where he took about maybe a couple of athletes from each sport. So I think he took Michael Phelps and I, and they came and did about, in, in a few weeks, they took like 38 vials of blood and then had a baseline and just started randomly testing you whenever. And they can tell when there's spikes or what's going on, you know, in your levels and stuff. And so it was a very intricate program, but they didn't really talk about it a lot, but I was involved in that program. And, you know, it just got to the point that obviously it was upsetting at first when if you imagine doing something your whole entire life and someone's saying you're not doing it the right way or you're cheating, you know, it's very hurtful. And it just got to the point that it became such a, a hot topic that I just tried to turn off the news, turn off you know, the people who were talking about it and and just not read social media and just do the thing that I needed to do. And I knew what my friends and family knew, which was that I was doing it right. So... Yeah. You know, you mentioned all of, so maybe you do have more than anecdotal evidence, but in tennis, it's been talked about, and, and a colleague of mine at ESPN, Caroline Wozniacki, is coming back now to play. And we were talking one day, and she was telling Chrissy Everett, she said, you know, I was hitting with my dad in January after having her second child, her son. And she said, I said to my dad, am I hitting the ball harder or is this me? Like, what is going on? And Chrissy even said, Oh, she never even dreamt of a comeback after having her children. But she said, I always felt stronger after having the boys. And you look at marathoners and how many of the world's elite marathoners actually do better after they've had a child. Did you feel physically stronger or different? Or is this random? These stories, I mean, these women are so in tune with their bodies. I believe them. Yeah, you know, um, 
it's it's weird because when I first started my comeback, like things were a lot looser, you know, as far as joints and stuff go. And and when I had the the trainers working on me, and the specific trainer had worked on me, you know, years ago for two thousand, he was like, God, you just it's so much easier to stretch you and get you loose. And I'm like, oh, he goes, I think it's because like you had a kid. And then the training I did was so different than I did in two thousand. Like it wasn't about as strong as you can be. It was more so just being efficient in, in the weight room would make you efficient in the pool. And when you're swimming, when you look at someone like a Michael Phelps swimming, he's not the strongest guy out there, but he's so efficient in his stroke and how he takes each stroke and each breath. And that's really what it's like. I mean, if you watch a dolphin swim, you don't see them swimming really hard and fast. You see them just kind of going up and down the water and they're so efficient and beautiful the way they swim. And that's really what it became more about. But yeah, I mean, honestly, I I was actually shocked that I was swimming times faster than I had ever swum. I mean, when I broke an American record at 15 years old, I had done like a 25.6 seconds. And when I broke it again at the Olympic Games, I went 24.0. So I went a second and a half faster than when I was 15 at 41. I mean, obviously, like your training changes, you know, the equipment's different and the pools are different. But for a 50 free one lap, that's a, a very big difference, you know, from when I was 15 to 41. Yes. When you measure success by 100 of a second to take off a whole second plus and a half is, yeah yeah is remarkable <laughs> you know swimming is is very similar to tennis too as a parent and a mom coming back to compete you don't have teammates you know it's mano a mano it's you in the pool and you can't have a bad day and hope your teammate can score an extra 15 points for you you know <laughs> and in that regard it's different you can't have a bad day when it's time to race yeah, it is. I don't think what a lot of people understand is that, you know, in swimming, you're going to Olympic trials and you have to be on that day. Doesn't matter if you have your menstrual cycle, doesn't matter if you're sick, like doesn't matter that you broke the world record two weeks prior. You have to get first or second at the Olympic trials or you do not make the team. And there have been many swimmers who have not made the team who were highly expected to go because they had an off meet or an off day. The Olympic trials are the most nerve wracking part of the whole process of going to the Olympic Games. In between your your many hiatuses and comebacks and you know, you also got a fantastic college career squeezed in there. What are you most proud of over your 24-year career? There are probably two things. Probably the longevity of being in the sport and being able to figure out how to do that and to listen to my body, to get advice from, from other people and to work with people who, you know, all have the same goal, which was for me to make the Olympic team and not have any egos get in the way. And that was a lot of fun sort of putting that team together and doing that at 41. But also, I think just learning as you go. And I think, you know, if you were to ask me that question at 17 compared to 41, you know, 17 would be, oh, the gold medal, that's like the best, you know, but at, at 41, it was really the journey to get to the Olympic team, the journey to win those three silver medals and what it took and how it kind of shaped me and shaped me as a mom. And that's probably the most important thing. And the most rewarding thing was the journey and not necessarily you know, the icing on the cake as, as being the medals and the, the records and all that kind of stuff. Who did you look up to as a swimmer? Well, there was one girl in particular named Jill Sterkel. She was a dominant 50 freestyle queen and no one could beat her. And at 14, I uh, stood on the blocks and 
you know, was a scrongy little punk skinny kid. And here is this like strong, powerful woman. And I was able to beat her. I'm she probably had that off day. And she still was such an amazing person and really so selfless, like things that I would see she would do like in throughout her career and sort of take me under her wing, even though I was beating her. And it was just, she was just kind of an amazing person, but I, I really don't, just zone in on one person. There are so many different athletes that have done amazing things that I love different qualities about them, like Michael Jordan's competitiveness. And you have like the the duels between Chrissy Everett, Martina Navratilova and what they had to do. And now they're like incredible friends. And, you know, it's just so many different athletes that I learn from, I guess. And so I don't pinpoint one person, but Jill Sterkel was always kind of my swimming idol. I like that message too. And it's just a reminder that there's room for more than one of us. Yes. It's time for my two cents. This is a segment sponsored by J.P. Morgan. At the end of every episode, we take a moment to reflect words of wisdom from our guests. So, Dara, let me ask you, what do you recommend for women? Maybe for you, it's specifically moms who might be looking to get back into their professional circuit or professional sport. I think just know that you're always going to feel guilt when you're doing it. And I think that's part of the process, but know that every mother and parent out there who, you know, just become parents and have to go back to work, just know that we all feel that. And that's just part of just the education of, of being a parent and doing what you love to do. And so that would probably be, be my advice is just know that you're going to have guilt, but we all go through that. Your point about feeling guilt, if I could follow up on that, because I think it's really important and and being similar ages, you know, when you went back to work with your daughter, you felt guilt and how many people would say, oh, I'm sorry, you have to work, you know? (laughs) And yet this generation, I feel just a generation behind us. These women are embraced for working. They want to work. I feel like there's been a societal shift and a societal change welcoming so many women back in the workforce. Do you feel the same way? Yeah. I mean, look at our parents who like stayed home and, you know, just were the homemakers and did what they need to do to take care of all the kids. And now women are figuring out like how to balance that and realizing that, you know, you have to have a life too, to be the best parents you can be to your child. And it can't a hundred percent all be about them. You have to take care of yourself too, to be able to take care of them. Yeah, I agree. I, I had somebody say to me once, Oh, you're, you're still working. And I said, yeah, traveling the world with good friends and colleagues and meeting fascinating people. Yep, I'm still doing that horrible drudgery, you know, <laughs> like oh it's such a crazy, <laughs> you know, such a crazy uh, take on it. But anyway, if you could look back, here's question number two. If you could look back, is there anything you would have done differently? You know, I, I don't think there is because you learn from all your mistakes, too. I mean, obviously, you know, we all make mistakes and some are bigger than others, but um those mistakes shape you as to who you are. And so, um, you know, if there was anything, maybe I wish that I had talked to someone about my eating disorder in college, but at that time you didn't really talk about those things. Um, so it might've been perceived, you know, differently than if you were to talk about it now, but yeah, I, I just, you know, I, I don't, regret or change anything that I've been through in my life because it is who I am today. And I've learned from those mistakes and, uh, you know, you, you learn and you move on and make yourself better. That was Dara Torres, 12-time Olympic medalist and mother. Up next, Taylor Townsend took time while she was playing in Cincinnati at the Western and Southern Open to speak with me about unexpected motherhood and how having her baby boy in 21 shifted her understanding of herself. Here's our conversation. 
Well, this is fantastic to have Taylor Townsend, a mom on the tour, joining us. Taylors, we're talking about motherhood and career and coming back to a very challenging career. I appreciate your time. Yeah, of course. It's great talking to you, Chris, as always. Before you were a mom on tour, you were a phenom. You were a child who came so naturally to the sport and number one junior player in the world that's for, you know, players under 18. You got your start in Chicago. Why don't you tell me about how you came to the sport? Because you're such a good athlete. I think you could have chosen any sport and have been successful. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, Tennis has gotten all of my love and athleticism. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I started when I was four. My mom played tennis and she played until she was like eight months pregnant with me. So I think that it was kind of like in my blood, which is actually crazy because like when I had my son, like I was playing up until like the day before I went to the hospital. Like I was out like playing points with my sister, <laughs> thinking that I could like <laughs> run all over the court and like be superhero. I was always just around the sport. And um, my sister started taking lessons and I would just be around, but I would always get mad because I was like, if she's going to do something, I'm going to do it. I loved it from the beginning. I mean, I had challenges even when I first started. They didn't know which hand I played with. So I actually started out playing right-handed and I would always fall. And my coach just told my parents, like, I think something's wrong with her. Like, <laughs> she, can't, <laughs> she can't stay up on her feet. So then we switched to my left hand and I played righty for like, over a year, like I could rally and get, get the ball over and everything. And we switched to left-handed and then I kept whiffing and couldn't make the ball. And I was so mad. I was like, no, this is horrible. This is the worst thing you could possibly do. But now I'm not complaining anymore. <laughs> no, are you kidding? Being a left-hander, what a strength. Every There's no one in my immediate family that was left-handed. So when I would watch my sister play, she was righty. My all Both my parents were righty. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to do what I see. I, as I said, you were number one junior in the world. Did you think it was always going to be so easy? No, it was not easy at all. <laughs> oh my God. Um, actually, it's it's kind of crazy because just like thinking about my evolution as a player, like it all happened so fast and it was something that I always wanted. I always wanted to be the best player in the world, but like to believe it, like I always struggled to believe in it. You know, for me, there's always some doubt because I've had, you know, people doubting me from the time that I started. I mean, just naysayers and people like saying negative things. And as you grow and like you kind of hear that stuff, sometimes it seeps in. And so for me, the belief uh, was the hardest part. But then when I actually got into it and started doing it, I was like, oh, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) A light bulb went on. I could do this. Yeah, I could do this. you know, to hear those naysayers as as a child, you were a child. I mean, it's it's horrible. What did you learn from when you were young that helped maybe steal yourself for a professional career? Man, I, I learned so much. Just looking back on my journey, like even now, me being a mother and like the things that I've experienced, like in the tennis world and the lessons that I've learned, uh, like how to deal with very tough situations and the resilience, those lessons have helped me to shape my decision-making as a mom. So like, I know that there are certain things that like, I would never allow people to say to my son or for him to hear like, and I know because I've experienced it, how to put up that wall to where I can protect him from those things. You know, I've learned how to deal with very difficult topics of conversation on a worldwide public stage, me personally having to figure out 
how do I want this narrative to go? How do I want people to see me, even though the story is almost kind of being written for me? How can I reshape this and take the control and, you know, turn what can look and appear as a negative into something that's positive? And how can I reshape that? And um, having to do it publicly was just very difficult at such a young age as well. But it just it, it just taught me, you know, overall, just how to deal with those things, but also just to be resilient and just to continue because I never allowed those situations to stop me from doing what I love to do, which is, you know, stepping out on the court and playing and competing. You played one of the most exciting matches going back right before the pandemic at 2019 U.S. Open against Simona Halep. And for, you know, tennis fans know this about you, but for those who are listening to this conversation, you are a dynamic serve and volleyer. You love to come to the net. It's very unusual in the women's game to see somebody do it as frequently as you do. And more than 100 times in that match, you did it. And it it was such an incredible win. And there you were getting to your career high in singles. And lo and behold, Taylor's having a baby. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, take me back to that period in time. Oh, I thought my life was over. 100%. (laughs) Like, I was like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? You know, so it was just like, I struggled a lot to try and figure out like who I was outside of the sport. And I didn't even know that I had those issues until the pandemic kind of came about and and brought that up. But I didn't really have a sense of self like outside of tennis. And it was actually really crazy because World Team Tennis was in July, but earlier in the year after Australia, everything shut down, like basically from Indian Wells. So from March to July, I really struggled with my identity. Like, I was just like, oh my God, like I have not been home this long. And then when things just kept getting canceled and I was just like, when there was kind of like this unknown, because for tennis players, you always are planning the next, the next, next. You plan your schedule, you know where you're going to go. And yeah, you have to adjust, but you know, you have a general idea. But for this, it was just like, okay, this is canceled. Okay, well, okay, well, Miami's canceled. We might play Charleston. Okay, Charleston's canceled. Okay, I saw the test and I was like, oh my God, like what? But then when I really sat and thought about it, everything, all the arrows kept pointing back to my tennis. And that was the only thing. And I was like, well, how can this be bad? You're young. You have the ability to come back. It's not like this is something where it's going to stop you. And then my thing was just like, okay, mentally, I put together a plan of what I wanted to do. And I just tried to execute it the best that I could. So I was like, I'm going to keep working out. I'm going to be in the gym. I'm going to hit as much as I can, you know, until I basically can't anymore. <laughs> <That's exactly laughs> Which was two days, two days prior to, to his arrival in March of 21. Yeah. And, and <laughs> I was just like, I'm just going to do what I can. And so like, I think that helped a lot to have a plan where it wasn't kind of just like willy nilly, like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing or kind of just trying to figure it out as it came. But I mean, it's honestly been blessings in disguise, even my pregnancy. Like I didn't realize that I needed a break, but but it was exactly what I needed. It was the space that I had needed in order for me to come back rejuvenated, refreshed with a newfound passion and love for the game. Becoming a mother and having my son, even though he's not with me or he doesn't travel with me as much, it's just given me like a sense of my why. 
And before I feel like I always struggled with my why, because it's just like, okay, you want to win a tournament or you want results or you want this, you want that. But the true purpose, like it just giving me different purpose. Mm -hmm. I just really feel like I'm doing this for something so much more than just myself and which I I actually am. And, you know, it's, it's really cool because I just conduct myself and I'm just like, is what I'm doing, the person that I am, how I'm presenting myself, how people see me, like, is this all something that my son would be proud of? You had your plan. You kept working out. You knew you were going to get back to your sport, but you didn't rush back. And you did some recon, reached out there and and got information. Who did you talk to? Who did you turn to to say, how do I navigate this? Because while it's not super common, we certainly aren't talking about 15, 20 years ago where it was borderline unheard of. I mean, it's there are a handful of women and more and more who are coming back to tour. Well, I reached out to the two people that I know <laughs> that really those were the only two examples, which was Serena and Kim Kleisters. So Kim Kleisters was kind of like the OG person because she mm-hmm. was really the first person that had her baby, came back, had another baby, came back, want to slam. And then Serena as well, because she was more recent, I felt like a lot of my pregnancy experiences were similar to Serena's. So I was asking her just like how her body felt and certain things that her body went through because I felt like we were kind of dealing with similar things um, in that way. And I was just like, oh my God, is this is this like a me thing or is this like normal? She also put together like a really cute registry for me. And just She was just like, okay, this is what you need. This is what you need. So honestly, she helped me more with the prep with the baby. And I, I took what I saw. Like I saw Serena and kind of how she was when she came back and and what she went through and kind of trying to find her rhythm and everything while still competing. And I was just like, okay, for me, I know Serena's level is up here. So regardless, I mean, and she came back and she made four Grand Slam finals and everyone talks about, oh, she didn't get 24, but like there's still four Grand Slam finals. <laughs> right. So, no one was more consistent in reaching the final weekend exactly. of Grand Slam singles play than Serena Williams post-pregnancy. Exactly. Period. but I knew that like, for me, I wanted to make sure that the goal that I set for myself was when I come back, I want to be better than I was when I left. I set that goal and identified that and was very specific. And that's what we worked towards. And we had certain markers in place to say, okay, yeah, we're there. We're there. But I mean, for Kim, the biggest advice that she gave me was just like, Hey, don't rush back. Don't feel like you have to like hurry up and come back on tour. And you know, it's easier said than done, especially like, as you said, we rely on our bodies and, you know, for our, our income and everything like that. But listening to her advice, it helped me a lot because it kind of took the pressure off of me. And I just was like, okay, I'm going to enjoy being a new mother mm-hmm. and I'm going to enjoy. So I don't, I'm not going to think about a tennis court, tennis racket, any of that stuff, even though I was watching it, like I'm breastfeeding and like have Miami open on TV. <laughs> But, but, you know, so it was nice to like get that, but I was like mentally detached, you know, Kim's advice, Serena's advice was very helpful. And just to know that like I could pick up the phone and call them or text them was like invaluable. 
Yeah. You mentioned Kim came back and she won her slam. I think watching her daughter run across the court at the U.S. Open mm-hmm. to, to be with her as she picked up the trophy is pretty an iconic moment mm-hmm. at the U.S. Open. In fact, you've gotten darn close to winning a slam. You've been in two finals mm-hmm. since you've returned from having your son. You were in the final of last year's U.S. Open for doubles, as well as the French Open this year. Mm-hmm. What do you credit having such great results to? I mean, a couple of the moms I've spoken to have said, I think I came back physically stronger. Or is it mental or maybe emotional? Maybe if it's all three, Taylor. For me personally, it's all three. Um, Like I said, I wasn't going to come back unless I was ready to win. So I know that Mm -hmm. I really put in so much work to get where I am. So the physical part, you know, I think it speaks for itself. You look at me, my body, I look better than I did before I, before I left. So mentally and psychologically, I have a different approach because I have my why. And I know that, Hey, like there's something bigger than this. So I think that that takes a lot of pressure off too, because it's like, okay, you win a match, you lose a match, whatever. But like you come back and you know, you have your child and I can go on FaceTime and they don't care if you won or if you lost. They literally don't care. Something you've said a couple of times now in our conversation, and I want to address it, is that your son's not traveling with you. He's not always with you. And there's the moms you can look to and say, oh, they're back on tour and they have a a big entourage, you know, or uh, the traveling nanny and maybe the husband on the road and the team and the manager and the mom. And, you know, they're they're the elite of the elite, Mm -hmm. right, who can afford to do that. How do you decide on the juggle? you know, and how do you make decisions? What comes into play? Well, I try to take myself and my wants out of it. And I try to remove self and I try and think about what's best for my son. And I know, like I, I was in Europe for three months and I didn't see him for three months. And that was, <laughs> was really, really hard. That was hard. Yeah. But I know it's two things. One, I know that this life on the road and traveling, going from hotel to hotel, place to place, even though I love him being with me, I was just like, this is not the lifestyle that I want for my son at this young. For me, what's more important is for him to have stability and structure and organization, thriving in his own environment and the environment that we create, you know, with schooling, education and everything And then when it makes sense, you can come on the road. It's a sacrifice that I have to make and that I'm willing to make right now in order for me to reach the best place that I can be to where I can afford those things, where I can afford people to come on the road and he'd be on the road all the time. You have two or three additional hotel rooms and, you know, all Mm -hmm. of those different things to where then you can create that, that comfort on the road. Yeah, I heard Alina Spitalina and Gail Monfils say the same thing, mm-hmm. you know, that their daughter wasn't with them. And that's what Alina said. It's it's a stressful environment. You know, I don't want her in a stressful yeah, environment. It is. You know, it's great. You put him first. Yeah. And, you know, and then when you are with him, because I found as a mom, gosh, it made me efficient yeah. with my work time. Yeah. <laughs> where do you see the impact in your work? There were times over these last two weeks where I didn't have anyone to watch my son. So he came to practice or I said, Hey, I got two hours. Like I got to be out of here in two hours. So it's just like really efficient practice schedule to where it's like, we do everything that we need to. And it's just one of those things that happen sometimes. And then when I go home, it's like so many different elements that come into the mix. So then it's just like kind of a juggling act. So then 
I kind of have to shift from like selfish to then everything else. So I have two final questions for you because you've been uh, such a great guest and I just really appreciate your honesty. Um, you know, cause the experience is a, it's a tricky one. It certainly is what you're doing. It's amazing. This is called My Two Cents. It's a segment that's sponsored by J.P. Morgan. And at the end of every show, Taylor, I take the guests and ask them to just reflect and give me a few words of wisdom. So, Taylor, what do you recommend to women who were just looking to join the professional circuit or professional tour? The best advice that I would give is to make sure that you have really great people around you that have your best interests and aren't afraid to tell you the truth. Because this is a very difficult life, especially if you do well and you have great results where people can tell you that you're the best and everything's great and all this stuff. But you have to have people that are willing to be honest with you and look at you and be like, no, this is screwed up or no, even though this looks great and it's shiny and it's pretty, it's not good, you know, and being able to give you a different perspective I feel like that's so, so important because there's a lot of decision-making that goes on when you're so young, sometimes that you're a part of or that you aren't a part of. And that's what I experienced. And for me, like, I wish that I had people in my corner that kind of would have helped me or just to be able to guide and direct me a little bit better where I didn't feel like I had to do all of that on my own. So that would be some of the best advice is just like, make sure that you have people around you that care about you, that love you as a person, not you as a tennis player, understanding that the tennis will elevate just by you becoming a better person, a stronger person, a wiser person. The tennis will continue to grow. I think that's great for, you know, professional sports and just for life, Mm -hmm. you know, get the right people around you. Your job isn't the goal. It's, it's who do you become through the job or through the work and, and the growth that you talked about. Second question is if you can look back, is there anything you would have done differently? Maybe not wearing those blue contacts I was wearing when I was a junior. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, the braces, the contacts, the bow. Oh, it's a hot mess. (laughs) No, (laughs) but, um, to be honest, no, I, I I wouldn't do anything differently because I'm truly living in who I am. And like, I'm so proud of the person that I've become because through all the adversity and through all the struggles, like it would have been so easy to just give up and do something else over the course of just learning the lessons and then trying to say, okay, I'm not going to let this win. And I think that's just the competitor in in me and in us. And and everybody has that in their own way, shape, or form. So honestly, wouldn't do anything different. I'm incredibly proud of where I am, the accomplishments that I've made, the decisions that I'm making, um, the sacrifices that I'm making to be where I am today and, and where I will be in the future. You know, Taylor, if your biggest regret is your accessory choices when you're a teenager. <laughs> you're doing great. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the time. I, you know, we haven't gotten to work together or even spend much time together, but I do. And I've said this to people sometimes. I look at you and I go, I'm really proud of her. You're, you're doing a great job. Thank and you. it sounds like you are a terrific mom. Thank so you. That means lucky a lot. little boy. That means a lot. Thank you, Chris. 
Thanks so much once again to Dara Torres and Taylor Townsend for joining us on the podcast. Next time, join us for a roundtable talk with two pioneering women in sports broadcasting and sports management. Don't miss the next episode of Equal Play, 50 Years of Equal Pay in Tennis, presented by J.P. Morgan. Equal Play, 50 Years of Equal Pay in Tennis, is presented by J.P. Morgan. It's a production of Neon Hum Media and the United States Tennis Association, and it's hosted by me, Chris McKendry. The series producers are Mia Warren and Rob Dozier, executive producers Shara Morris and Matt Guerra, production management help from Samantha Allison and Taylor Sniffen. Our theme song was composed by Asha Ivanovich. Sam Baer is our engineer. Special thanks to Tara Bell and Rashina Warren.